looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 539's podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard, and today we're tackling what I can only describe as the unholy trinity of pre-code gangster movies, and for this journey, I've got podcaster and filmmaker Martin Kessler, and I can't tell you how excited I am to dive into the subject, because this is one of those topics that lurks towards the beginning of my obsession with film history. Same thing happened with our Magnificent Ambersons episode. There was this first class that I took in college where I was introduced to early sound films, and Little Caesar was on that curriculum, and so my sentimental affection for Little Caesar knows no bounds. But I just love gangster movies, period. But Mr. Kessler, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Good to be back. What an exciting topic. I know, like, I, I was thinking about references to these films in... You know, films like uh, The Departed by Scorsese or, of course, De Palma remade Scarface. So it's like you can kind of picture these guys watching these movies and rep screenings and being just as excited about them as, as we are right now. So it's it's a lot of fun to dive into this, I think. Yeah, the influence they've had on pop culture. I mean, obviously, the gangster genre. The gangster genre was just in a different place in the silent era. You definitely had crime films. You had like cool things like uh, Regeneration by Raul mm-hmm. Walsh, and you had uh, you know the Musketeers of Pig Alley, and you had like Docks of New York by Joseph von Sternberg. I mean, there were gangster movies, but what's cool about these is that they're gangster movies, but they're also contemporary. Like they're these hardcore gritty movies about what was going on at that time. I feel like we watch a lot of gangster movies now that turn to a romantic eye toward the past and admittedly there are exceptions like the remake of Scarface was contemporary the remake of like The Departed was contemporary but these movies we think of them as like being period but they're not period they're contemporary they're just made almost Mm -hmm. 100 fucking years ago sure I mean there's some exceptions like I was thinking Roaring Twenties which came out late 30s with James Cagney like that was already kind of a throwback I mean obviously like Roaring Twenties is in the title but you think like oh that's you know it's almost 20 years after it's said so like these films are actually getting to the point where people were nostalgic about that bootlegger gangster era and there's always been kind of ever since prohibition there have been bootlegger films and there's kind of romantic romanticization of um, these types of anti-heroes who go outside the law to make a buck and go in it for themselves so i think these movies represent to like prohibition era gangster movies what like dracula and frankenstein represent for you know gothic romantic horror in the early 30s like i, I love anti-heroes where you're rooting for the villain and they always have these silly tacked on messages or scenes inserted like 
this, this behavior must be frowned upon, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. y'all don't really seem to mean it, but <laughs> that's all right. If that's the game you got to play, I'll, I'll play. You know, these disclaimers at the very beginning, like, oh, this isn't to romanticize. And it's like, oh, this is the most glamorized version of a gangster's life you could really get with something like Scarface. Like, it's like, no, wait, this is cool. This guy's you know, a brute, but th this world is really cool and interesting and captivating and there's nothing really condemning it. It's it's actually enticing. So I, I think that's uh, that's kind of part of the course where you sort of have to pay lip service to whatever the prevailing moral standards are. Like, I, you know, I watch a lot of Russian films and it, it's like very similar. You watch a Russian movie from the late 50s, early 60s, that kind of a tacked on censorship where you can see right through it, you know, like um, Alexei Garman, his first film that he did with a co-director, the seventh satellite, you know, it's the sort of dissection of the Red Terror. At the very beginning, there's this like very obviously tacked on disclaimer, like the ones we're watching on these gangster movies that said like, oh yes, the, the Red Terror was a perfectly adequate response to the White Terror and this was all okay. <laughs> it basically frames it in, you know, the prevailing moral terms that you have to kind of follow that line. But really like, I think what's exciting about these gangster movies is that they're transgressive and weird and kind of go outside the bounds of regular morality, you know, with violence, with sexuality, with a number of these uh, topics. So I, I think it's it's cool. And like, you know, you sort of mentioned the monster movies. I thought it was really interesting. Each studio kind of had its staple genre. Universal oh, yeah. was the monster movie. They all had a house style. MGM musicals, you know, and really it was uh, like Warner was kind of the king of the gangster movies. Oh, yeah. And uh, although... It's interesting. Scarface was kind of an independent film. That's the sort of oddball we're going to be talking about. But, oh, because Howard uh, Hughes was a maniac who was like basically his own walk-in studio because he was so fucking rich. Yeah. What's funny too, like Scarface kind of looks like the most expensive of the three that we're going to be talking about. It's it's like so polished, actually. I think it had a pretty long shooting schedule. Like it was shot over six months, which is unusual for a film at that time. And it was supposed to come out. Um, I, I think he like went through quite a bit of fighting to get the film finally released, you know, and part of the censorship, you know, this, these are pre-code movies, but you still had a kind of informal Hayes code um, that you kind of had to pay lip service to. Yeah, the code came about gradually. It wasn't abrupt. Yeah. And then after th 34, every movie had to follow. 34 is kind of the But they were kind of yeah. work. These are, I mean, these are probably some of the movies that helped usher in. <laughs> I, exactly. The codes. It's so obvious that like some of these couldn't get away with this stuff just a you know a couple of years later. Yeah, and um, I don't know. Have you seen that documentary? This film is not yet rated. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, about the rating system. Like one thing they kind of touched on in that is how the rating system also kind of is designed to benefit big studio films and then push out these independent movies. And like I think the fact that you hear about how much Scarface struggled with the censorship and uh, had to deal with this to get released because it was, had its outsider status and yeah. yeah, I, I think it was partly because of that outsider status they, they had a bunch of uh, problems making it i mean like they couldn't get a really a big name studio actor to star in it because those people were under contracts so you would have to lend them out or uh you know they ended up going with uh, paul money who's I always kind of want to say Paul Mooney. Money or Muni? I, I, I've always called him Muni, kind of Muni, but I, I really don't know. Because I think of the comedian from like Dave Chappelle and stuff like that. That's sort of what I, I think of. But um, it, it might be Paul Muni. He's so great in the film, though. Like I think we're kind of you know three movies. It's also three great performances at the center of each 
of yeah. these all you know, incredibly I, charismatic, yeah. dynamic characters. And it's funny how. Ever since these movies, we've had a strange relationship with the gangster movie where if you romanticize them too much, people say, oh, but you're glorifying violent criminals. But if you just make a movie condemning violent criminals, well, it's probably going to be a pretty boring, self-righteous movie that no one's going to want to see. So it's like, well, are right. we making entertainment or are we, or are we not? All right, we're making entertainment. Well, we're making entertainment about these violent criminals. So it's like it gives you this weird identity crisis both in the making and in the consumption. Like David Chase talks about this with The Sopranos, how – they always were trying to thread that needle, like, all right, well, if we make Tony too likable, it's like, oh, everybody loves Tony. Here comes Tony. So every <laughs> once in a while, they would throw in a scene where you see him doing something really fucking savage and brutal. And I think that's, yep. that's the key. They can be charming. They can be larger than life. They can be incredibly dynamic. But every once in a while, you got to throw something in there like, ooh, that's right. These are bad guys. The, the, I mean, yeah. on one hand, you could say they're fighting prohibition, which I think prohibition was totally absurd. On the other hand, you can't you know, leave a, a, a path of destruction in your wake. That is, uh, you right. know, antisocial behavior, to put it, to put it mildly. <laughs> and, well, and I think that really captured, like, you know, you have that opening, the, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And it feels like it's more that philosophy than the real condemnation of what they do. It's like, okay, these guys live a violent life. And it's cool. There's sort of a Robin Hood aspect of, like, society's against them. You're in the middle of a depression like you can't drink alcohol like these people are fighting back against that on some level and that's really cool but you know also doing it in this sort of brutal violent way and these are like mean thuggish characters it's like okay that's going to come back to bite them you know there's a real sense of irony when you see like the the world is yours at the end of scarface or you know these are all rise and fall stories absolutely and it's a trope i mean the rise and fall of a, of a great yeah. man in the world of crime is a yeah. trope but these are the movies that really helped carve that path and establish those tropes and so many movies borrow from them and just moments and scenes and shots are like oh my god i've seen that shot in a million other gangster movies that yeah. i love that came decades later like somebody getting shot on the on the steps of a church like whoa oh, I, saw sure. that, I saw that in the godfather and so on and so forth <laughs> and it's like or even only a couple of years later in roaring 20s with like james yeah. cagney rolling down the stairs they, they redo that shot pretty yeah. much but it's such a dynamic image like um i think that was in little caesar with getting shot on the steps the guy who goes yellow and, who the the driver who chickens out on him you know and it's just like it's stuck in your mind you say like wow you know and it's it's almost hard to kind of put your mindset in the frame of somebody who um is seeing this for the first time because like the you know i almost had to kind of break through this history of seeing like all these performances parodied and all these tropes parodied for like Bugs years Bunny. and years how many Bugs yeah, Bunny yeah. cartoons make fun of uh, like Enrico Bandello? G. Robinson impression in their back pocket, you know, and it's almost like you kind of have to set that aside and go like, oh wait, like these are really great performances and really fresh and interesting films, you know. I, I think partly because of the performances that go such a long way and like that attraction that you described, like it's it's sort of these people are dangerous and brutal and violent, but there's definitely like an attraction there. Like one of my favorite scenes in any of these movies is um, in Public Enemy when Jean Harlow's talking to James Cagney and she's like, you're not like other guys, you're strong. You take what you want, you know, that's cool. Like you think about what life must have been like during the depression, you know, you sort of feel like, well, are you gonna be exploited by, by society or are you gonna exploit society? And like, there's something really cool about this guy who is unapologetic in taking what he wants violently if he has to, you know, and that's like another great scene with uh, Cagney and Harlow is, is when they first meet and he's in that like enormous car, <laughs> like all the cars are huge in this film, but he just like pulls up and like he sees her and he wants her and she yep. likes 
how direct he is and like it's such a cool scene how he, he picks her up because it's it's so and the way he says goodbye yeah. you know, james cagney no matter what tough guy's playing you can't contain the dancer and i love he does like a little two oh, or three I, step little twist thing and then he goes back like, first he leans against the door almost like a dancer and then he does a little dance and then he hops in so yeah james cagney Goddamn, he loved to dance movies like Footlight Parade or Yankee Doodle Dandy, yeah. whatever. But the, he he lets he puts a little bit of that into his character of Tom Ballard. Oh, for sure, he acts with his whole body. Like I think that's where like a lot of the energy comes from. Is watching like even you know at the very end when he's shot and he's like wobbling in the rain, you can kind of see that dancer come through. Just like it's a really brilliant physical performance. And like uh, you know, in contrast, like Paul Mooney, it's a great performance too, but it's very face oriented. Like it's all in the face. And I think he, like he was kind of considered to be like almost the artistic heir to Lon Chaney where he got famous for doing his own makeup and kind of creating his characters through his face and he, he won an Oscar actually for um for playing Louis Pasteur in a very respectable biopic but I don't know he's great in Scarface like you know even the design of the the scar that like X I've seen that replicated in anime and all these different things that like X scar. And of course, Scarface, it's also full of that X imagery that oh, was yeah. borrowed for the departed. But like, you almost get excited whenever you see it come up. It's like, Ooh, like there's an X I get like, that guy's going to get gunned down <laughs> in the next scene. You just know it's coming, you know, these little like prophetic markers of doom. Uh, and Paul, Mooney, you know, he's, he's just got that like, I, I always think like watching Scarface, especially he makes me think of like an ape in a suit, like especially during his rise to the top, you know, he's kind of trying to fit in with this like upper class, somebody who's got some money. He never but, like, understands he... what people are saying. Like if somebody says something to him, he will, they'll, he doesn't realize they're insulting him. And then he'll kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah. And he kind of, like, you can tell he's not quite processing everything, yeah. but he's rising very quickly all the same, but it's, it's part of his charm. They say his jewelry is kind of feminine. It's like, oh, yeah, I just got him at an auction. Like, he doesn't even know like, what, what they're saying. Or like, oh, that this place is kind of, or your place is kind of gaudy. He's like, oh, ain't it though? Like, he kind of gets excited. He doesn't know what gaudy means. And, and yeah. I, I love that. I always think, like, it's kind of like a Macbeth story, Scarface, where it's the, you know, lieutenant who makes good, who then rises to the top. And like, it's that basic kind of framework for a story. But like, he's not, his ambition is just like, driven by his ability to violence his way to the top you know most people like they look at uh, hard work to fuel their ambition or intelligence to fuel their ambition and he's just like a violent thug and that's enough to kind of put him at the top you know and that feels like that that should be enough the promise you the world is yours if this is a free country take what you want and that feels kind of justified within the moral framework of this movie yeah, so like, like he I think gets his first really tommy good. gun and he's like oh my god if i had a bunch of these i can take over the whole place you, in a month you could, <laughs> hey look you can carry it around like he's yeah, it's like a baby yeah yeah <laughs> you know, i love that like well and how he gets that machine gun he shoots a guy and he just takes it because he wants it yeah, like that he gets it for him george whole... raft who was from this world i mean george raft who was yep. friends with bugsy siegel and people like that and uh when he sees how excited scarface is getting he, they're they're in the middle of being assaulted it, by drive-by yeah and he, he just shoots a guy this. and runs out there and gets a sub the tommy gun for him <laughs> and like i don't know he's, he just falls in love with the tommy gun which is of course like the iconic weapon of the gangster you know that you always think of people shooting Tommy guns at uh, coppers in, in chases. Well, like and, Miller's Crossing, yeah. we had the great scene with Al oh, Finney yeah. using the Tommy gun when he's defending his home and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's the the signature weapon. Well, let's slow down and go step by step. We have three different movies, each that I think are remarkable in their own way. And 
maybe because I just saw Little Caesar first is why I have this like like almost irrational personal affection for it. But I've mentioned this before in previous podcasts how some of my pre-code movies, the music, even the opening credit sequences, they give me this weird like celluloid high that I don't get from any other era of filmmaking, and I can't even really put it into like into rational terms but it just gives me this strange like cinephile euphoria the moment you start hearing those tunes but what i did with this um when i was getting prepared for this episode i whipped up my old dvds and for little season public enemy warner brothers did this thing where they call it warner night at the movies where they would create a night at the movies experience where they would show you an animated short a newsreel like a short film a trailer and then the movie and it was just so much goddamn fun, which is why like uh, for this one they played a uh, lady play your mandolin, and there was um, a short film starring Spencer Tracy, st- like uh, with a struggling in Hell's Kitchen, and there was another one with like uh, a newsreel interviewing the girlfriend of Legs Diamond and all this stuff. But it was <laughs> anyway, it was but it was just just so much fun to try to recreate that like evening at the movies. But the writer of this, uh, W. R. Burnett, who wrote the book, he's a powerhouse writer. He went on to write a million movies, even as late as like The Great Escape. And Mervyn Leroy is not a director I necessarily have like enormous affection for, but I feel like he has, it's very, not an understated style, but he lets Edward G. Robinson kind of do most of the heavy lifting. Like the yeah. spotlight is his. And Edward G. Robinson's just kind of nice, intellectual, very well-read dude from, I think, Bucharest and a, a Jew nonetheless. But somehow he's able just to conjure up this incredible larger-than-life persona for this movie. Arnie, you ought to have better sense than to hire a couple of outside yaps, especially bad shots. Come on, what is it? Let's have it! Arnie, you're through. You hire these mugs, they miss, now you're through. If you ain't out of town by tomorrow morning, you won't never leave it except in a pine box. I'm taking over this territory. From now on, it's mine. You're growing, Rico. So this is what you've been after all the time, eh? I seen it in your eyes the first time I met you. You're no good, Rico. But if you think you can muscle in on me like you did on Sambatory, you're off your nut. I suppose you forgot all about Pete Montana, huh? How's Diamond Pete going to stop me? He may be your boss, but he ain't mine. Uh, Sam didn't feel that way about him. Sam knew who gave orders. Yeah, Sam was too soft. Diamond Pete could scare him, but I ain't no Sam. Sam is through. Now you're through, too. Nice stick pin you got there, Arnie. Nothing phony about my jewelry. Arnie, you better quit this racket. You can dish it out, but you got so that you can't take it no more. And you better take your hats and beat it. The first thing you know, you'll be arrested for finding a rod in the city limits. Well, I guess that's about all. And like, I feel like larger than life is really the right word. I mean, what's great, both him and Cagney aren't big guys physically oh, the but they always feel like the, the biggest guy in the room and like it's just through sheer force of personality like i, I really love that about little caesar and uh, public enemy both i think like the energy coming coming out of them it, it's it's really great and oh you, you know what i really like um uh, you know this 
the, the nicknames coming out of these movies. Like, you know, Fats Carrillo, Killer Pepe, Kid B, Scabby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smart guy yeah Scabby, Kid Bean, Killer Pepe, Bat Carrillo, Otero. I, mean, I love Otero. He's a great character as well. Yeah. But but you can see, because I know, it was, I think it was in the early 50s where Scorsese, as a young boy, saw a double feature of Little Caesar and Public Enemy. He was blown away, and he would proceed to see the same double feature played again and again at different theaters around town. And eventually he realized, all right, I'm officially studying these movies. I'm not just watching them anymore. Right. But you can see so much of the DNA of his later movies when you've got like that great voiceover narration with um, you know Ray Liotta walking through a bar just describing all these, oh, there's Jimmy two times because he said everything like this. All that stuff's coming from Little Caesar. What's interesting, too, these movies, this is so early into the sound era, really. You think like... 31 you know, 31 and the dialogue, not even the dialogue, but the verbal performances are so uh, sophisticated. They're not naturalistic in the way we think of now, but they're so stylized and so specific to film performances. You know, they're not doing theater and like Edward G. Robinson, it's been parodied so much, but I really do like his like, man, his little, <laughs> you know, verbal affects that he adds in his like sneering and uh, just the way he says you're through he's like he's like arnie you're You're through through. you hired these mugs they missed now you're through and and then he's like you know like uh, diamond pete could could scare me i ain't no sam sam is through now you're through too i mean like the way there's nothing more like the most brutal condemnation in this world is for him to say either you're through or you're slipping and if he says either you are not long for this world oh the slang is great too there's so many like oh go screw or you know like sometimes you sort of recognize like a slang term that we might even still use today but it's uh like not quite in the same context sometimes like i'm gonna blow or you know there's a couple of these like who's kicking like why should you kick who's kicking like i I, yeah it's the the slang is delightful it feels authentic but at the same time like full of like movie magic all at the same time and how like even like the cops use it as well now the cops are almost like one step away from being gangsters themselves and what I love also is how this movie really establishes the archetype of somebody who doesn't like alcohol, doesn't really like women. He likes wealth. He likes power. He likes to be able to look at a room full of guys and know they'll, be able to, they'll do whatever he tells them to. Mm-hmm. All that little Caesar wants is wealth and power. And really, wealth is just a means to gain more power. And that's really almost like creating like an archetype for success. If you really want to be successful at something, have zero distractions and zero vices. Just let your vice be like your goals, like all in one. His vice is just more power. You know, and like you get the sense that when he loses that power right at the end, that's like the biggest insult for him. That's why he kind of starts drinking, taunts taunts the cops and starts drinking. And that's like him kind of, he's at rock bottom before he dies in the movie. Like when he's saying like, yeah, of course, the famous line, is this the end of Rico? Like, it's not the fact that he's dying. He's dying in the gutter is what but the, hurts. But the story, the, the epic story the, of Rico is now story. at an end, and he can't yeah, believe it. He can't believe it, you know. And I talking, like, it came up during the Magnificent Ambersons episode as well, this idea of, like, you can't really buy taste. So, you know, like, you know, similar to these other films, because they're somebody who comes from nothing and they rise so far to the top, you know, they're surrounded yeah, he doesn't by get a painting being a value. He's like, oh, yeah, those, those gold frames must go for a whole hell he of a lot. He thinks it must be like, like the gold frame. Like, he doesn't understand, like, why the painting would be worth so yeah. much. You know, it's just like he understands gold could have value. But, you know, he's he's just clearly not somebody who was ever meant to be in this upper class world who just takes a piece of it. He, 
I mean, he's kind he of a hick. Yeah. I mean, like they, yeah, they in the beginning, yeah. he, they're always looking like kind of looking down on him for being from the sticks. And he's yeah. a guy he wanted to head east where things break big, and that's what he did. He's a, he's from a, a small town guy who's used to like robbing like local gas stations and things like that. And but his ambition is enormous. But it's something that we see play out again and again, whether you're talking about like, you know, the remake of Scarface or whatever the case might be, someone who comes from absolutely nothing and builds an empire with their own sweat. Well, like one thing that's common to all three of these movies is they're all stories about somebody from immigrant families, you know, and that's partly true because of that's, you know, associated with the world of crime because of, uh, you know, you can talk about like the whole socioeconomic reasons for that. But I like that these are all kind of, you know, either immigrants or from immigrant families trying to, in their own way, take a piece of the American dream by force if they have to, because, you know, they're not necessarily invited to the table. So, like, I, I really like that aspect of it. You know, you can feel that, like, no, this is my turn. I'm going to take it. I'll take it with a gun if I have to. That that kind yeah, of keeps coming up. Yeah, not a lot of, like, great crime movies based upon people who, like, grew up as, like, a, like a wasp at the country, at the country club. Or... <laughs> well, you know, and these are, uh, like, in two cases, it, Italian families, and in one case, uh, I think, Irish family. Uh, totally Irish. You know, I mean, and, like, Public Enemy is one of those Irish yeah. movies I've ever seen. And, you know, and that has to do with the, the period that these films come from. And, like, if you were making them today, like, you know, there are different nationalities that these families would probably be. But it's sort of interesting, like, how a lot of the... The stereotypes that went along with like Irish or uh, Italian people from that period kind of carry over into modern day, and uh, you know people have these associations. How it's more to do with whoever whoever's new to America, whoever's not considered really American. Like that, that's a big part of it. So yeah, I mean, if you look at a movie like The Godfather, it is the I always say it's the great American movie in the sense that it's an immigrant story, but it's also a story of like different generations and how wealth impacts them. And obviously Michael is like the final product of like Vito's ambitions and goals in terms of gaining political influence and so on and so forth. And you really can just see like the whole story of the 20th century through the lens of the Corleone family. And I think that's the best gangster movies always carve out a little piece of that, how like, you know, Scarface and the, the remake by Brian De Palma, he comes home on a, on a boat uh, with a bunch of yeah. refugees. He's in a refugee camp and with a knife and a will, he carves out an, an empire of cocaine. But you mentioned uh, just the Irish love- experience. Let's talk about yeah. Public Enemy, 1931. A director that gets far too little love on this podcast is William Weldon. Oh, I, I love William A. Weldon. He did another pre-code film that's one of my favorites called Night Nurse. Barbara oh Stanley. yeah, yeah, but also like just, he rose for sale, and he did a yeah, bunch of good yeah. pre pre code ones. He's great, and like his style is really dynamic. I feel like it, it's held up really well. Like you know, obviously we really like Little Caesar, but I think like out of the three, direction wise, Ribbon Leroy, like I don't want to call it stilted, but just you kind of put it up against the direction of. Uh, I think Public Enemy for me is my favorite of the three. It's definitely the one I've seen the most, and I can't quite put my finger on why, but I think all the ingredients come together the most successfully in this one, but I've seen all three many times. Once again, Little Caesar, I've got this like emotional attachment, but Public mm-hmm. Enemy is a movie that I think I like it more now. Having been, I've been watching it on repeat for 25 years and I still find reasons to be impressed by it. Absolutely. And like, I think every time I watch it, it almost feels like a rediscovery of how great Cagney is. Like he's such a, I always think the word for it is a dynamo with this film. He's just, like a ball of energy, you know, he generates energy and charisma and, and, you know, I'm completely drawn to that in this film. Well, you mentioned earlier how he acts, had such a physical performance, the way he'll put on a hat 
or the way he'll like twist his hand when he's gesturing to somebody or the way he'll flip somebody off. His whole body is an instrument that's being played by a master. And in early talkies, you have a lot of people oftentimes who are standing around a flower pot to disguise a microphone and kind of talking into it. Cagney is not about to be bound by the, the early, stuffy, kind of rigid, early sound era style. He is all over the place in this movie, and it's what makes it so much goddamn fun. Yeah. He's one of the most likable performers in Hollywood history. And that's a perfect pairing for Wellman, because like I think Wellman was one of the first directors to actually employ uh, boom poles. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, like, you got to move the camera. Like, yeah. you can't be pinned down like that. Well, people those... love his shot from Wings. They're always sharing it on Twitter, which is one of his silent movies, with the camera yeah. floating through the tables. Anytime someone posts that GIF of the camera floating across the tables, oh, it gets like it gets a thousand like a likes, yeah. thousand retweets. I'm like, God damn, like, what? How about a shout out to William Wellman who created that shot because he was in the Lafayette Escadrille in World War One, total madman, and uh, I mean, to be a pilot fighting in World War One, like yeah. you were part of a very small, rare breed. And I know he got this horrible injury at one point where the throttle went through the underside of his jaw up into his mouth. But he made tons of movies. He made comedies. He made westerns. He made gangster movies. He made so many fucking cool movies. But Public Enemy is the one I always keep coming back to, and I think this is kind of the movie that represents his signature style where it's just it's gritty as hell yeah there's a grit to it there's a energy and a fluidity to it and i think like you know if you think about it's just a couple of years into the sound era he adapted so well and he didn't compromise his own style moving into the sound era and i think that's one thing that really shows and comes across well there's that sense of motion and pace uh, that uh, like not every film from that period has and i think that's one reason why public enemies just aged so well hey tom wait a minute what happened oh nothing i just got burned up that's all what do you want to run out on me for we're together ain't we sure When they leave that apartment, when they're supposed to be holed up and they're unarmed, but, the, you know, uh, as, as Cagney says, I just well, got boined up. All... All the... yeah, he, gets, <laughs> uh, he gets boined up, and so they're walking, and as the assassins are waiting to shoot them with a machine gun, the camera's moving, and as Matt gets shot, the camera is moving along with them, and it makes his arching up in agony so much more powerful. And so, yeah, it's one of the most masterful scenes of this period. And of course, because it's the pre-code, just wild, wild west of Hollywood, they're using a real fucking machine gun <laughs> to shoot at the wall I, by I think, Cagney. Yeah. Yeah. There are stories about like using real bullets. Um, I think like there are stories about like Cagney almost getting killed making this film, which he almost got disfigured. Yeah. They were, sh they were shooting at that little, like that little cluster right by the wall where he looks out around the corner and they ducks back around. And admittedly, like the guy was a marksman, but it's like, you're still That's talking really about yeah. <laughs> someone shooting machine gun at you. I mean, fuck that. But this movie has so many great characters. I love all the names. Like I love um, Patty, who kind of takes them under their yep. wing. He's such a great character, and yeah, Patty Ryan, and he's such like a, a lovable kind of surrogate father. And then of course you got Nails Nathan, who's likable oh, but much more dangerous, much more sinister. You can tell he's one of those guys who really teaches them 
this is a, a town that you're going to basically like throttle into like submission and they learn, they learn a lot of their bad, their bad habits from them. But also like a weird gallows humor, the fact that nails Nathan yeah. gets killed, kicked in the head by his own that's, horse. Uh, that's like, really, I think that's like one of the most, you don't see him get killed by the horse, obviously, but like, it's one of the most shocking scenes in the film for me when they go and kill the horse. You got that horse that killed nails Nathan? You mean Raja? A bad animal. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah, what's he worth? Sprinted horse. I told Mr. Nathan not to ride him. What's he worth? Well, he could be bought for a thousand dollars. You see, it's... Never mind. Hey. Where's he at? Stall number three. Stay where you are. It's like so unnecessary. Yeah, they 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 buy it. They make sure to pay it. How much is the horse worth? And you go over and like, you know, you always kind of say like, okay, yeah, pre-code is going to be a little bit of sex and violence. But like sometimes you'll get something that just catches you off guard. And like killing an animal in a film just feels like one of those sort of transgressive things. And it's like, I mean, but they don't. It's not like Godfather where they show the head of the horse in the bed. No, no, it's all screen. It's almost more shocking though because they just, you know, they pay for it, and it's like one wide shot where they go around to the stable, and you just hear the two gunshots and the like whinny sound, and like it's like it actually shocks me today. I think it's still shocking. There's a lot of off-screen violence in this. I mean, the big climactic shootout of the movie is off-screen. Like that takes real balls. Where you've got Tom Powers, he's about to get revenge. He's about to just mow down his enemies and he's seen him in the rain outside. He goes inside like fucking Chow Yun Fat gun in each hand. Yeah. And then when he comes out, he's wounded. And once again, as you mentioned before, he's acting with his whole body, like falling down, getting back up. And you just hear this one person wailing inside and I'm getting goosebumps on my forearm just remembering it. But the staging of it is so masterful. And that wail of pain just creates all these images in your mind. Like, Oh my God, what went on in that room? And it's 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 amazing. And like, do you want to talk about the grapefruit scene? <laughs> Let's talk about it because there's a lot of there are myths and there facts myths surrounding it, yeah. it, but it's easily one of the most contra- controversial scenes of uh, but, of that era. Yeah, it wasn't improvised. Like that's kind of the thing that people presume or assume about it because it just sort of looks so shocking. And it's there's something like extra mean about like. There's lots of things you could get shoved in your face, but like a grapefruit's gonna sting, and it just feels like that much more mean spirited. But like, yeah, like again, a pie this, is like for last. A yeah. grapefruit is kind of gross and squishy, like, and <laughs> you know, I feel like there are versions of the scene where you could come away laughing, even though it's like this guy being violent towards a woman. But the fact that it's a grapefruit just kind of makes you feel like it goes over that line where like, oh, like that was That's br- he no, clearly it's, crossed it's one the of line. The parts yeah. that reminds you. Oh, like it's kind of funny seeing how he's like hungover and bitter. But on the on the other hand, you have to remember, Tom is not a super nice guy. But May Clark, the actress, her husband yeah. apparently kept going to see the movie for that scene <laughs> and would laugh uproariously every time that scene came up. But like the reason I knew, like I'd heard the legend that oh he did it spontaneously and her shock was real yeah. and how dare he. But they're publicity stills of the scene. And in the publicity still, she's looking at him. And in the movie, her head gets shoved away. So like, even with the most amateur detective work imaginable, like, oh, 
they did multiple takes of this. And so clearly it is a scene. And so I think a yeah. lot of the righteous indignation over it is misplaced. If you want to say in the context of the story, hey, we should not be laughing and rooting for this guy because he's violent towards women, go to it. That's part of the story. But I don't yeah. think they were being violent to actress Mae Clark. No, I, I don't think so. And like the character, his attitude is very much like, okay, this woman doesn't respect me. Like I'm going to shove a grapefruit in, her, grapefruit in their face and find a woman who does get me. And, you know, he kind of works his way up until he meets uh, Jean Harlow's character. <sighs> yeah, Jean Harlow's yeah, on she's... her way to becoming a star at this point. She's not quite there, but Howard Hughes fell in love with her in a big way. And she would sadly, she was dead by like 27. She died yeah. really young. She died like, 1930 something like she died very young yeah, yeah. this is before dinner at eight this is before any of her, like, yeah. her, her big movies but she was a, in um like howard hughes he did hell's angels she's in that um i recently i watched her in this movie uh bombshell the victor fleming film and like the dialogue is so funny she just the way she spits it out and how kind of sharp and witty, but you know, also kind of silly and funny it is at the same time. Like I think that's like a really great Gene Harlow performance if you ever see. Scorsese talks about how Bombshell. she's not, you know, some marvelous thespian. Like you're not getting yep. a performance on the level of like Greta Garbo, but there's something irresistible about how she's clearly from the Bronx, but she's speak trying to speak as if she's not, almost like she's trying to disguise it, and that becomes part of the charm that she's a climber as well. And there's yeah. something that's irresistible about her. And it's funny how like her body type isn't necessarily my go-to, but even there, there's something incredibly <laughs> sensual with the way she uses her body. And on the on the set of this movie, very famous anecdote, James Cagney kept staring at her, her cleavage and asked her, in perfect innocence apparently, how do you keep those things up? And she said, ice them. And she trotted off to her dressing room to ice down her boobs before doing their next scene. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah, she she was she was uh, using what uh, what God had made her in order to become a um, a massive star. But let's talk a little bit about the opening credit sequence of this movie, which I think is a strong contender for the greatest opening credit sequence of any movie I've ever seen. And anytime I hear the tune, I'm forever blowing bubbles. This is the first scene that I think of.
everybody has like a little character beat and a little moment. And like you see like uh, Putty Nose, he's uh, putting chalk on a pool stick. And the way it just defines all the characters before the drama even starts, I've, I find it irresistible. It's like the opening credits with each character kind of getting their own moment on screen and doing like a little something, you know, smiling at the camera. It's like, I always think of uh, like my go-to reference points, the end of Predator with everyone kind of like turning and looking at the camera. Yeah, hell yeah. But, uh, you know, here you have like James Cagney doing that little like punch he does throughout the whole thing. And it's just a great way to kind of like introduce you. And you're not going to forget the name Tom Powers when you have like Cagney right there next to him. Or, you know, some films like you have the opening credits and like you don't even have a reference of who's who yet necessarily. You might know the actor's name, so you have to kind of put it together. But it's like, oh, like there's John. Joan Blondell, like that's what she's going to look like in the movie. <laughs> it kind of just tells you. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, how he does the little punch and how the whole movie's yeah. doing it, but he does, he's always like gently punching shoulders, gently punching shins. It's like affectionate, but it can also be menacing. And he's just yeah. always kind of rubbing his fist on people throughout. And I don't know if that's something that Cagney cooked up or if it was in the material, the book, because there was a book called Beer and Blood, which obviously becomes mm-hmm. a big line that his brother delivers later on when they're having this miserable dinner with this giant keg of beer in the middle of the table. <laughs> the, the dinner table scene, it like, it's one of the longer scenes of the film. It gets, I, I think it's perfect because it goes like drawn out to the point where you just feel uncomfortable and you're kind of waiting for everything to kind of blow up between between the brothers and you know i mean family is such a big part of all these movies the kind of way that crime kind of feeds into the family dynamic but uh, well the ending of this movie would be nothing if you didn't have that incredible sense of family this movie i think has one of the grimmest bleakest most hardcore endings of any film in this period and the reason it hits so hard is because the mo- the role of the mother has been so yeah. clearly established and defined. Like, you know, you get to the end when Cagney's showed up and he's in the hospital, it seems like, okay, maybe he's going to pull through and like he's learned his lesson and, you know, he, he got hurt, but, you know, maybe everything's going to be okay for the best. And then you get that final scene and nope, where they just like dump his body flat, you know, like a piece of meat. And it's, uh, it's so bleak, actually. It, it's really and great. And you've got, once again, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles on the record player. Most yeah. of the music in this movie comes from within the scene, like somebody hopping on a piano or putting on a record. And so you get that scene, that music during the opening credits. And then as the movie's about to wrap up, you see them put on the record. The music begins like, all right, well, this feels like a perfect counterpoint to the beginning. And the way Cagney's just left like a fucking zombie in the doorway, the way he falls forward, first and foremost, as an actor, that would hurt like fucking hell if you're all completely tied up and restrained and you have to yeah. just fall on your belly and the way his legs kind of flop up and over. Like, I don't know. I hope that he didn't have to do that take more than <laughs> once. And then the way the brother, he just stands up and the mother's sort of so wobbles. excited upstairs. Yeah. She's preparing his room and she's humming to herself as she makes his bed. It, Your heart just... It's the most emotionally impactful scene of the whole movie by far because the rest of it's like fun and intense yeah. and hysterical and suddenly the movie becomes incredibly sad. But that's also like a great trick of the film that you could have this character who's just mean and selfish and brutal the whole way through and then when he dies you feel terrible because there are people who care about him and it makes you care actually. And then, of course, you have that like little tacked on epilogue where it's like, you know, the end of Tom Powers is the end of every hoodlum, you know, <laughs> wagging its finger at you. But, you know, you feel like the film's saying something deeper than just like crime doesn't pay. It, it actually goes into how it affects the family and how how this fits into the larger society as a whole. So, like, I think it's I don't know, it's, it's a powerful film even today. I think there's moments of violence that are still impactful and shocking and. 
it's, it's and moments of violence that are hysterical. Yeah. Their first big job when Kagi yeah. freaks out and shoots a polar bear or a stuffed bear. <laughs> I mean, I laugh so hard every single time. But then, of course, they get screwed over by Putty Nose. They catch up with him years later, and they walk him home. And while he's playing the piano, they shoot him in the back. I mean, it is brutal. But it's like a weird mix of comedy and violence where for every brutal line, at the same time, the way Cagney would pronounce words, like instead of work, he'll say woik, or instead of burned, boined. And like, it's so like adorable, even if he's being terrifying terrifying or like when he's a little kid and he tells his father like how do you want him this time up or down and like before he gets yeah. like the paddling it, it gets funny and gross and kind of twisted all at the same time which is what movies should be i, I hate it when people think oh well, the scary movie needs to be scary and a funny movie needs to be funny like no movies i feel like the really good ones the ones that i respond to find a way to stir all sorts of crazy things together or even like weird pre-code like gay humor when he's getting uh measured at the tailor and he keeps he says on two occasions like make sure there's plenty of room in here keeps gesturing inside like his like (laughs) where his junk is and the guy's like oh such a muscle and like squeezing his arm and it's a weird thing where like Cagney's kind of smiling at him and acting like he doesn't want to be flirted with but only in pre-code hollywood would you get a scene like that well, like, you know, gay characters basically disappeared from films for, like, years, you know. Like and, decades. <laughs> and, like, this was about as openly gay as a character could be on screen. I mean, I know a lot of people think that, um, like, maybe uh, Rico in Little Caesar's character might be meant to be so gay. Like, this, it, is like, this is what I get for liking a guy too much. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the line. This is what I get for liking a guy too much. And, like, to me, it's almost, I, I think of it more like... Um, or almost like uh, something like Point Break, where people keep like analyzing the subtext. I'm like, no, it's just like, it doesn't matter if it's uh, gay or straight or whatever. It's just like he loved that guy too much to kill, and that's like it, it's not subtextual. That's part of the story. You know, it's very overt, and you can kind of read into it. I, I think like people yeah, can kind of speculate on that. These where they're trying to like sneak things around. Like they're they are as like as abrupt and obvious as like a, a smack yeah. to the face and. I mean, or just like little th- scenes like when um, we haven't even mentioned Jim Blondell yet, who's one of my favorite yeah. actresses of this period. But when uh, Tom and Matt bump into these girls at this club and their dates are just completely passed out and the way they just move in on these girls. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, uh, what he says to the girls like, um, oh, well, like he says, what do you all have? And she's like, anything you say, big boy. And he's like, <laughs> you're a swell dish. I think I'm going to go for you. I mean. I, I I eat that shit up. And this is May Clark before Frankenstein. This is like a year before yep. she would uh, make horror history. So May Clark, big time in horror and in gangster flicks. Oh, for sure. There's some pretty good flirting in uh, Scarface too. Like when well, this let's is move, let's trying move to get... on. Let's move on to Scarface, 1932. Okay. Mm. So what are you coming? To be honest. Where's Chester? Well, I don't know. She go out. What do you mean? Aren't you coming home for dinner? Uh, I don't like that. You tell her I want you to come home for dinner. Understand? Sure, I tell her lots of times. I don't care what do you think. 
You do what I say. Sure, and never have any fun. No, never have any fun. You call that fun, eh? Run around with a guy like that. It's fun. Listen, you want the real fun, huh? Yeah. How's that? Gee, Tony, where'd you get it? Never mind where I got it. You just spend it, eh? Well, go on, get ready for dinner. Now remember, you do what I say. No more fellas, understand? What for you want to give her money, yeah? Well, she's just a kid. She wants to have fun. Yeah? Sometimes I think you crazy. I, for whatever reason, I love Howard Hawks, and he's one of my all-time favorite yeah. directors, and I almost never discuss him on the podcast because I, my, my vow is basically... People aren't allowed to come on and talk about Howard Hawks unless they are fans. And but, you know, Scarface, 1932, it's not even really like Hawks is, hasn't made it to where he's going to get. I feel like he yeah. really really starts seeing like Hawks Hawks around like time of like 20th century. Late 30s, 40s. You think like His Girl Fridays, stuff yeah. like that. Like that's kind of the era when you think of. But yeah, like he was already like successful working director long before stuff like uh, The Big Sleep or you know that the well he made silent movies but he was not a, like a very famous silent director it's in the talkies where he blooms but even for the, yeah. like his talkie period Scarface is early Hawks but goddamn you can see a lot of things coming together yeah like I remember back when I first saw the film I'd already seen the remake of course uh, maybe in university I, I decided to watch the original and like my assumption was oh okay for the remake they must have taken this like creaky old gangster film and kind of add, added all these elements to it and you know my surprise going back and watching it for the first time was like oh this isn't creaky at all and a lot of those elements you assume somebody like De Palma must have put in like for instance the uh, incest subtext uh, like that's right there in the original. Yep. Like that's you know they actually didn't really change much for the remake. You know he goes from uh, Italian well, to Cuban. She doesn't say fuck me, Tony, but she might as well. <laughs> no, but she might as well. It gets pretty close. It's uh, it's not that far off from that. Like again, you know, dealing with the censorship restrictions that they were under, they get a lot past the censors. Even even still, you know, even though like it was sort of notoriously cut down and interfered with um, and there's a and lot of dirty talk in this like when the, like, Tony's being grilled by the cops and he's talking about his alibi about how he's with a hooker and he says oh she's very nice like they're, they're talking about yeah. prostitutes out, out in the open and obviously flash forward two years later you would not see these scenes at all all but yeah the the incestuous tension between him and his sister is a weird thing where there's always that like italian stereotype of like uh you know uh guys like who want their sisters to remain like a madonna to be or innocent, like overly protective yeah, to, to the stay point home. Where it's creepy yeah I, I, but she's yeah. the one who keeps pointing out she's like oh well the way you're protective of me it sounds almost like 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 a jealous lover or whatever like she's yeah. the one who calls him out on it it's not suggested at all. It's like stated pretty overtly, and she kind of disappears for like 34 minutes. But then when she, when he finally bumps into her at a club or she's partying, you'll be sorry for this. Next time I catch you in a place like that again, I'll kill you. You're telling me what to do. I'll do what I want, same as you. Understand? You listen to me. I hate you. Never mind what I do. That's all right. Well, you're gonna stay home, you understand? I'm no baby. I can take care of myself. Yeah, running around with fellas, eh? Letting them hold you like that. Letting them look at you. Dressing up like that for fellas to see, huh? What I do with fellas is my business! Please, you mustn't! I don't think I'm gonna... Chester! 
Ah, don't let that you, huh? What did he do? He hit me. He said he killed me and I was doing anything. It was only dancing. That's all right if he let me. No crush. All right, the belly number. Come on upstairs. No cry, baby. <laughs> he has any right, right to. Just because I'm his sister, he can't throw me around like no, that. No, no, no. All right, don't cry, baby. I tell you. I tell you lots of times. He hurt you. He hurt you. He hurt everybody. That's where his jealousy really rears yeah. its ugly head. And yeah, it's just one of those things where Caesar has no sex. Tom has too much, and you know, and then Tony Scarface wants is, to fuck his sister. Transgressive, but like again, I think like you know, I not that I, I recommend this at all, but like I, I think part of what makes these films interesting is that kind of desire to break any kind of barriers or taboos, and it's like that feeling of, you know, even if you have to go outside of society and laws and norms, you know, you feel like anything should be yours you know the world can be yours and i, I think like that, that does actually kind of thematically connect to this that idea of incest like the american dream like that is the promise that is offered sex with your sister <laughs> no but um you know this idea that like yeah the, the world can be yours and you know if you feel like something is denied from you there's a there's a resentment that comes with that i know too like uh, the screenplay for Scarface like was partly inspired by like real research into gangsters but it was also kind of inspired by the Borgia family yeah and uh, like Borgia's that's another family that uh, was maybe a little bit too close <laughs> you know I, I think Ben Hecht was maybe the one of the writers who said that he was this is the kind of the beginning of his legendary career yeah. of all the people who have worked in Hollywood as a writer it is tough to find somebody with more hits and classics to their name than Ben motherfucking Hecht. And he worked with Howard Hawks on many occasions. Yeah. And Hawks realized early on that it was a good idea to keep a, a, a circle of friends around who were really good at writing, which is why he got to work with people like William Faulkner on multiple occasions or Ben Hecht on multiple occasions. And, uh, I mean, look, just like a quick glance at Ben Hecht. Uh, I mean, wrote, he worked with like Alfred Hitchcock, I wrote Notorious and things like that. He's just, he's one of the all time legends who just, I imagine him just sitting at a typewriter and almost like wielding it like a machine gun, just like smashing with his fingers, yeah. just cranking out script after script after script. He's got like 150 screenplay credits and so many of them are some of my all time favorite movies from this period. And did you read the story about, I think it was like a thousand dollars a day that Howard Hughes was paying him just to work on the film? Jesus. <laughs> Like, you, I mean, Howard Hughes, I imagine, was a totally insane person, but yeah. he paid you well to put up with his madness. I, I think so. I, I think that was basically like Ben Heck's uh, description of the anecdote was like, okay, you know, what's the price that I'm willing to pay to be like jerked around per day uh, by Howard Hughes, you know, and like, okay, $1,000 a day, whatever, I'll write whatever you want, Howard Hughes, I'll deal with you, I'll put up with you. So, you know, I, I think like Howard Hughes said, name your price, and that's what he came back with, and Howard Hughes was like, okay, so that's how that came to be. I know, uh, I think Ben Hecht also worked on Design for Living, the Lubitsch pre-code film, which is really- I love really, Design for uh, Living. Great. I, like, I think- And that's got a full-blown menage a trois at the like, core of it, which yeah. is another transgressive bit of pre-code goodness. It's it's really great. I, what's funny about that, like the yeah, we talked about that with uh, Amanda on um, I think it was pre. We've done two pre-code episodes of Wrong Reel, 
and Design for Living was one of them. But yeah, Amanda's probably the biggest pre-code fan that I know yeah. uh, on the face of the planet. She is always down to have these conversations. And anyway, that, I just know that's another Ben Hecht uh, endeavor, cutting down Noel Coward. Like basically every word out of the play for the movie was like changed. So, um, and I, I think he worked for uh, what was it? For, uh, the front page might have been that the Howard yeah, Hughes he movie wrote, he had previously the play, worked on. Yeah. And then the play was turned into His Girl Friday. I think the front page of the play came out right around this time as well, but that was one of the, his first big claims to fame. And then, of course, once again, it's hard to disentangle sometimes fact from legend mm-hmm. when you're talking about these movies. But, of course, when they sat down to read the front page, the, the legend is they were having a girl run lines and they realized, oh, it's way better if it's a girl as opposed to like a buddy, which is why Rosalind Russell ended up getting cast opposite Cary Grant in His Girl Friday. Which is the whole movie, really. Yeah, it's, it's a husband-wife yeah. tension. And that's why His Girl Friday is one of the funniest, fastest, most kick-ass movies ever made. Yeah, so Ben Hecht, yeah. is, he's one of those writers where it's just like you throw a rock in the 30s and 40s and you're going to find great movies written by Ben yeah. Hecht. And- so it's interesting too. Like there was also lots of research done into real gangsters for Scarface, and probably the one that it most obviously alludes to is Al Capone. And I think like you can see some of Al Capone in Little Caesar. You can see some of Al Capone in Public Enemy. Like he's, you know, he was just such a towering figure in crime that you had to kind of reference that. Uh, but like like Scarface, I think. Al Capone, that, that might have actually been his nickname, was, was Scarface, right? It, it absolutely have a, was, yeah. It wasn't as cool as the X mark on Paul Mooney's face, but uh, he had a scar on his face also. And, you know, you can kind of see a number of similarities in that, that rise and fall story that it's partly modeled on Al Capone. Well, a lot for, of people talk about how the, the strange symbiotic relationship started to develop between the movies and the and the get and the figures of these movies were based right. upon where guys like luckily Luciano and the, they loved these movies. They thought they were hysterical and they started to kind of ham it up like movie characters. And so it's like, well, which is like, it's like art imitating life, imitating art. It's like going right. back and forth where, but it's part of what makes it cool. And the fact that George Raft comes from that world, but decided, I mean, he, if he had zigged instead of zagged, he would have been a gangster instead of an actor it just adds an additional authenticity into the movie. And so it's hard to know where performance and reality, where, where, where the two of them stop and merge and so on and so forth. There's always been this kind of like a connection between cinema and real gangsters where, you know, people imitate the pop culture. I mean, that goes on, I think, even to this day where people are trying to imitate what they see in uh, music videos or, you know, whatever. Or and hip-hop that kind of... artists who love the Brian De Palma Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, or uh, you think of stuff like John Dillinger being killed walking out of uh, Manhattan melodrama and stuff like that. You know, there's this kind of connection between the pop culture and trying to imitate the pop culture and what's cool and also pop culture feeding off of real outlaws and using that to determine what's cool so there's this sort of symbiotic relationship that goes on for you know all the way back to this period and i'm sure some of that is a different era but a lot of that probably holds true for like wild wild west culture obviously the the western era was kind of over by the time movies roll in but if you grew up in texas or if you grew up in wyoming or whatever and you were watching westerns in the 30s 40s and 50s etc and you happen to work on a ranch i imagine once again culture would kind of bleed both ways but the fact that the people being like um i guess 
adapted or the people that are inspiring these characters are alive and in their prime at the same time as the characters. That's what creates this weird kind of ebb and flow or like this, it's like water sloshing back and forth in a bathtub. And I'm not aware of any other time in history where, I guess when Scarface came out, yeah, like cocaine business was alive and well. Like when Goodfellas came out, it's obviously capturing an era that was in the past, but you still had, you know, a lot of those figures that were still actively, um, working in around New York. But yeah, I think it's what makes this genre so endlessly compelling. And why people, great filmmakers keep returning to it and they're so fascinated by it. It's just because it, it's so much a part of like the big city experience, these larger than life figures. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, Westerns, that that's one kind of environment, but like the city and the pace, the fast pace, the fast talking, it all kind of goes together. The fast guns, you know, that you it's not these little uh, six shooters. You want a gun that spits, you know, <laughs> like when he said, like, I'm going to spit with the Tommy gun. Yeah, get out of my way, Johnny. I, I'm going to spit. You know, it, it's just that that city life kind of pace permeates the crime films. And like, I, I love that, actually. Like, it all feels like its own separate world. That's the separate like from Hong Kong action Westerns, films. Yeah. Have this weird energy of the city of Hong Kong. Yeah. Like a Hong Kong action movie feels like unlike any other action movie because the city bleeds over into the movies, and the same thing here. Chicago bleeds over into this uh, into this drama, and there's so many scenes that are played out both in this as well as in Little Caesar that get echoed and imitated later on. Like the fact that in Little Caesar you have a scene where. Uh, Rico comes in with his arm in a sling to confront somebody who may or may not have put out a hit on him. He's not quite sure. And then you flash forward to Tony Montana doing the same thing in Scarface or here where you've got Tony doing the same thing where you have somebody call in to kind of feel him out. And then he can tell from the way he responds. And then of course, like he breaks the glass and it's one of the most dynamic shots of Tony, the whole movie when he realizes when he punches the, the, paint a glass at the yeah. door it's like you know there's like a real kind of rage behind that that's frightening yeah it's it's but it's yeah. totally badass performance now would you some people find paul muni's role or portrayal of this character to be perhaps hammy or cartoony i don't know if it's that far from me but <laughs> well it's I funny find... people say the same thing about pacino's performance in the remake and one thing again like especially watching it this time around what i was really thinking was how similar their performances are actually like you know the al pacino's portrayal of tony a lot of the mannerisms i think like he's actually paying attention to Balmoni, and he's sort of uh you know he's doing a slightly different spin and you know people kind of make fun of his cuban accent today but it's like oh i can see some of those mannerisms and i can see some of those affects actually work their way into the remix performance and people say it's cartoony but i think it's it's supposed to be larger than life it's big it's powerful it's dynamic it's like and it doesn't it doesn't feel out of place in the movie for me because there's so many over-the-top characters in it like there's just like his little like sidekick his little buddy yeah. He's always saying like silly lines, like when he's like, "Oh, write this down for me." He's like, oh, boss, I don't, I don't write, and like you know, he just he's kind of there for silliness the whole time. And then when he finally gets shot at the end, even though he's been played as like a goofball the whole movie, like, you feel this deep swell of pity for this, you know, yeah. poor unassuming Italian dude who's just been kind of going along for the ride the whole time. But there are a lot of cartoonish characters. I think if you placed Paul Muni's Scarface into a different movie, then he might seem outrageous. But I think yeah. this whole movie is like the whole movie is dialed up to 11 the whole way through, even though like the way his sister dances for him and like sways her hips around and telling him how he's missing out on all the fun. Like everything about this movie is on steroids. Exactly. Like it's all part of the style and 
it wouldn't work if you put it in something else, but it's not in something else. It's in this, and this is the right kind of performance for this movie. And I think, again, people might not be thinking of the performance so much as the parody of the performance that's kind of come in the decades and decades since. I mean, these movies are all almost, um, you know, they're, they're like 90 years old now. So it's, yeah. I mean, we're going to, we're going to blink and these will be a hundred year old movies. The only performance Yeesh. in Scarface that doesn't work for me is the boss's lady who Tony oh. is obsessed with. And she's so yeah. like vapid and dry and like, Hello and all. I mean, she's she's like, no, no Michelle Pfeiffer. I'll, yeah, I'll no emotion, yeah. <laughs> no inflection. It's like download, download like a like a like a fucking emotion like hard drive yeah. or something. But like this whole movie is on steroids, like like nitroglycerin, and she's just like oh. I mean, anyway, just yeah, completely, totally unemotive. Whereas obviously, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer, fifty years later, was uh, going berserk. Yeah. Which is what you want. You want somebody to go berserk. But even some of the actors, like bringing in Boris Karloff, like just Fuck his yeah. face adds something to the movie, you know, like that kind of glowering expression. Like he kind of Was this looks the same like a cartoon. Year as James Whale's Frankenstein uh, or the year after? This is 32. This might have been filmed before and came out after. I could probably Google this stealthily. Frankenstein, really quick. 1931. Yeah, so yeah, okay. the so James Whale's Frankenstein think, was, released, was released at least yeah. a year before. But once again, you're right. Scarface, because of its contracted censorship battles, it's, could it's have easily be been shot before film. Frankenstein. Yeah, so I, Cause it I sat on a shelf for at least a year. Yeah, because it, otherwise it would have been right alongside, you know, Public Enemy and Little Caesar. It would have been coming out at the same time. And these are kind of the three highlights. But there were so many gangster movies coming out, like it, they were really churning them out for a little while. But these are kind of the three. I don't. I, I feel like. You know, these are always going to be three of the go-to ones. No, it's the it's, as I said at the beginning, it's the unholy yep. trinity. There's and exactly. they will never be replaced. And there, you can look to later Warner Brothers movies like Angels with Dirty Faces or High Sierra yeah. or White Heat. And I love all those movies; they're incredible. I love them, but they all feel like throwbacks to this in some way. It's like how how do we recapture that? They feel yeah. defanged and declawed due mm-hmm. to the Hollywood production code. These are the three where they really showed us what the gangster movie could do before all the buzzkills came in and said and started wagging their fingers and telling people what they can say or do when they're telling stories. Exactly. And that's that's what's great about the pre-code era. You kind of see what what vibrancy there was to Hollywood filmmaking. People were excited and excited to break barriers and taboos and I think it all kind of goes hand in hand with the content and with the filmmaking. It was so exciting that period of time. There was so much innovation and so many new genres, new ideas. And even if there was like turbulence in the world, you know, like it was exciting, actually. That's what made these films entertaining. And like, I think the, this is the depth of the, of the yeah. Great Depression. And for a nickel, yeah. you could go kill a couple of hours. And I like how these movies reflect the times in which they were made. And I think after World War One and the Roaring Twenties, and then obviously like the, the stock market crash in 1929, I think people were adults and they wanted adult entertainment and they didn't yeah. want a bunch of boring kind of sugar-coated nonsense it's a weird thing right now uh, where we have so many movies that are geared towards people of all ages but have this like perpetual kind of childlike um atmosphere about them yeah it it bothers me like it's kind of gone back a little bit to this uh, sort of haze code kind of mentality and like yeah exactly like you're adults and you you talk to another adult and they have to censor their own language it's like just just say the word you know (laughs) like there's no reason you can't just say what you mean when you're an adult, but people have to kind of sugarcoat things, like you said, and bury words. And, you know, you can't say that word out loud anymore. You can't say this word. And even though they all think it, you know, it's, it's, 
it's similar and you know i think the moralizing it's sort of similar that like oh you can't show this film because it'll show that crime pays or something like that you know they they're scared to actually it's funny how every era has an opportunity where you have to fight this battle all over again throughout all of history there's always people like these waves that come in where they try and revise or change or censor i mean i visited the vatican summer 2019 and there are all these beautiful statues in the Vatican that were stolen from Greece where they added fig leaves over all the naughty bits of all the statues. Yep. And this was like 1,500 years after the statues have been carved. And I love how the, these guys were like in their infinite wisdom thinking, oh, here we are in the year 1550. We know better. And it was shameful. It was like indecent of the yep. Greeks to carve all these beautiful statues. Let's cover up all the naughty bits. And you see that same impulse in 2021, where it's like, oh, well, this movie, it's shameful because it has this depiction this way or uses this terminology. It's like, no, these are movies that reflect the time in which they're made. Yeah. If you just want 2021 values, guess what? You can watch 2021 shows. Like, There are more movies and shows being made than ever before. You never have to look back if you don't want to. But it's a weird thing where there, people always want to whip up the scissors and start fucking with things. Exactly. And I think once you start coming from this place of... Uh, okay, we have to make something that aligns with these uh, societal norms and morals and this and that. Like, it stops being art. Like, you suck all the life out of it. Like, people are so afraid of any kind of moral ambiguity. It becomes propaganda, exactly. And I think, like, I hear a lot of people kind of trying to make the argument, like, all art is political. And I kind of go, like, yeah, I I get that. Like, you can read anything politically, but not all art is propaganda. And what people are saying is that, like, art should be propaganda. I mean, people who say that, that. like, say I... It's kind of like if I say I am not religious, I don't practice a religion, and people will say, oh, well, then, like, you are religious by the virtue of the fact that you aren't because that in itself is a system of beliefs. Like, you can use word salad to yeah, kind of explain reason. anything. Yeah. And you say, oh, well, that movie that's just about art for art's sake or for a heightened sense of experience, by virtue of not making a political statement, it's, like, the most political thing you could do. It's like you can twist things around so that you can make a blanket statement yeah. like all movies are political. But I think people who say that, they're kind of trying to force everybody into making political movies. People who are like in academia who study classic film, who love classic film, but have to deal with sometimes these uncomfortable subjects like, uh, you know, for instance, sometimes the racism that comes up in classic films or the sexism and they have to go in and come up with these like you know almost nonsensical analyses about like oh no this film i love it's not actually being racist it's a super secret double subversion of these tropes and like i have to explain it away but you know it's bullshit and yeah, it's, it's better like say, you know what this movie came out almost 100 years ago and it's okay people... to say like i love a flawed piece <laughs> yeah. of work from a different time period it's okay to say that i think you know it doesn't reflect on you to say like yeah, that was that was a pretty great movie moment when Cagney shoved that grapefruit in her face. You know, it doesn't mean I would do that in real life or, you know, like I can make my own decisions of an adult. Like you said, it, it's. Uh, but there's some people who think that yeah. every act by every character in every story is somehow an endorsement. Of yes. That act yeah. By the filmmaker storyteller. And once again, we get back to we talked about this at the beginning of the, of the of the episode. It's like. Well, if you just want to make a movie condemning crime, you probably won't have a hit movie. And, and I think two out of three of these movies were in the top ten performers of the year. So it's like, are you yep. creating entertainment or are you ma- making propaganda against crime? Because making propaganda against crime, well, then that's a different thing entirely. And I think a lot of people, they only want to watch movies that make them feel as if their farts smell a little bit better than they did at the beginning of the movie. And that's, <laughs> that's totally on them. 
I don't yeah. mind m- watching movies that make me feel dirty or sleazy or like I've committed some sort of mortal sin by watching it. If anything, I actively seek those movies out. Like I have the right to be shocked during a movie like people almost act like movies shouldn't have anything shocking in them anymore and it's like no that's a part of the experience of being a human being is being shocked by things and it's like yeah i I was shocked when the horse got shot you know it's almost like absurdly cruel for you know something like a horse would have no concept of but it's not like oh I, i think the movie should cut that scene out for animal cruelty like i value the experience of being shocked so i think you know, people can look at it that way also, but I mean, this is kind of a blanket generalization. The way I always put it, you can look at any point in history where, whether it's a piece of music or a book or a painting or a sculpture where people are trying to destroy it, censor it, change it, whatever. And at every point in history where people do that, they're always wrong. Like you look at like, I think it was um, like the Rite of Spring, you know, great piece of classical yep. music that people love. It caused like a riot and be like, oh, that can never be performed again. <laughs> it's like, well, yes, it should be. <laughs> Maybe it had that re- reaction because people had never heard music like that before, but it's a, an yep. astonishing piece of music. And so anytime there's a painting that shocks people or a, or a novel that makes people like clutch their pearls in terror, I feel like it's yep. always a, a positive. But somehow we allow these people to bully the rest of us online yep. into kind of sort of playing their game. And I, 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 luckily now I'm just getting old enough now where I just say, like, you know what? I no longer give a fuck. I'm just going to celebrate the movies that I love. And I'm not saying people have to watch them, but I do think there's a role to be played for podcasts to call attention to great movies, no matter who they might be upsetting. Yeah. And you know, like you said, the film, like a uh, public enemy can have an openly gay character versus just a couple of years later, that would have been basically impossible for a Hollywood film. And that, you know, that was wrong. And like how long it took for, you know, films to kind of put those characters back in. And, you know, that censorship was now everyone would agree that's wrong. But it's like, OK, our solution is to censor different things. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sort of disheartening when you kind of keep seeing this fight, uh, not just for classic films, but for new films also, that they have to conform to a certain morality. Or yeah. Well, it's like. And for whatever reason, in the last couple of years, and it's obviously all fueled by social media, but a lot of people have chosen to adapt. Like there's these, I feel like there's these ideologies out there that are pretty narrow, pretty rigid and very dogmatic. And so once, but once they adopt them, it's like a framework and they can't consume anything unless they can find, like we mentioned before, using word salad to justify how it fits into that framework. It's like, well, what about a movie that completely blows your framework to smithereens? Are you not going to watch those movies because they challenge your assumptions? Yeah, yeah. We, li- we live in strange but, times. Yeah, yeah. I think movies—they're a perfect place to explore these worlds that maybe don't conform to our morality. And I, I think you know, a gangster film—it's the perfect kind of genre to explore things that go outside our regular morality. And sometimes that's where you find the real interesting stuff—is on the fringes with the transgressive stuff that actually challenges the everyday normalcy and morality and say, okay, like actually, the everyday is wrong. You know, and there's something right about people who are on the fringes uh, being seen and being heard and saying something that you maybe don't want to hear at first because maybe they're right. So I, I think it's important to have these kind of fringe opinions worked yeah. out through cinema. And people I think that's need a- to be allowed to play fringe characters without it somehow being a representation of an entire demographic. Like we have a weird thing now where yeah. only white men are allowed to play bad guys because it's like, oh, well, if you cast this person <laughs> as a bad guy, 
are you saying that person's a bad guy? It's like, well, maybe it's the most well-written part in the movie, and maybe you're depriving this person, whatever the demographic might be, of a great part by saying, oh, well, you can't play that because then everyone's going to think we're saying those people are bad. It's like we've like reverted to the state of like really simplistic children who are completely incapable of grasping a complex story, and somehow these simplistic children wield like limitless power and influence, and it's like, I want the fucking Scorsese's of the world to reclaim the conversation. Like, you know what? The world is complicated and art should be complicated too. And that's not a very hard thing to grasp. But once again, Mm -hmm. we live in hysterical and strange emotional times. And I just try to play my own tiny, tiny, small role celebrating cool flicks in my own small way. Well, like the the book I wrote on Apocalypto, that's, um, it's coming to Amazon. I'm not positive when yet, but you can actually already... You can pre-order Read it. it. Well, you can get a pre-release copy if you're a subscriber to the Pink Smoke Patreon. There's like an early version. The final version is going to be a little bit different. It's going to have some extra illustrations and things like that. But uh, one thing I talk about, even though I'm, I'm very critical in some respects of that film, there's also things like, you know, critics attacking the film saying, oh, you know, you're trying to show the Maya as evil and that at the end the Spanish are coming to punish them because they can only think of this like moral punishment kind of haze code understanding of morality that like, okay, like people are doing violent things. The ending must be a a moral punishment on them, a justification. And it's like, okay, take a step back and rethink this because, you know, I I think the film is actually something saying something more nuanced and more interesting and more clever than that. But I, I think like, you know, especially coming to the film, knowing that it's Mel Gibson who made it. And, you know, this was, the movie came out just like a couple months after his famous sort of drunk racist tirade. Gotcha. Like it's, you know, so I think like people were kind of looking for any excuse they could to kind of dump on the film. And I think people also felt burned for giving Passion of the Christ a pass. You know, like I, I think they kind of scrutinized Apocalypto extra hard and were kind of trying to read things into it that weren't the film wasn't necessarily saying. But you read a lot of reviews and they have that kind of moral haze code like oh, you know, the ending with the Spanish show up, that must be because they're there to punish the wicked Maya. If that's the moral of the film. But, you know, not everything works in that kind of like, oh, what's the moral of the story format? Not every moral action is going to give you a reward or a punishment. And I think, you know, the gangster film is kind of a great place to explore that because like something, sometimes good things happen to bad people. Something, sometimes bad things happen to good people. You know, reality is complicated and messy and so is morality. You have conflicting moralities and cultures butting up against each other. And to think that you can simplify to this like cause and effect, like he did a bad thing, therefore he has to die by the end of the yeah, movie. It makes like, studying history impossible if you cling to these notions like i'm reading this really cool book right now called uh, empire of the summer moon which is all about the comanche indians and it covers mostly like the last 15 years of like their tribe basically like that's kind of their final days but it also covers like 200 years leading up to that where they're first at war with the spanish then with the mexicans yep. but also at war with the apaches at war with the cheyenne basically their yep. philosophy was at war with everybody and they were the most terrifying warriors on horseback that the world had ever seen since like the days of Genghis Khan. But as you're reading this book, it's hard to know how to feel about them because on one yeah. hand, they're such impressive warriors. On the other hand, the things they do to their enemies are so unimaginable 
that they will you'll walk around like sure. scared to the core of your soul for like an hour just like oh, I can't believe I just read about what they did to that person's genitals. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very similar like talking about the the Maya or the Mexica who had human sacrifice and things like that. It's um People don't know, like even uh, historians and people like that struggle to kind of discuss it because they feel like, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to feel like we're justifying the genocide that was brought about on these people because, you know, you had Spanish or later, you know, like even recently Guatemalan government sort of using history, twisting it to kind of justify genocidal acts on these people. But, you know, you also don't want to go the other route where you sort of oversimplify and say like, oh, everyone they were was all innocent. Beautiful and flowers. And They're all just flower children. You talk about the Americas before the arrival of Europeans, and these were very distinct cultures, often in conflict with one in conflict with one another. Fighting over hunting ground, yeah. Conquering each other, being, you know, sometimes get along, getting along, but also sometimes being very violent towards each other and destroying each other or exploiting each other. Well, the Spanish and, were fighting you know, the Apaches, and they were like, "Where did all the Apaches go?" They couldn't figure out why their enemy was just like disappearing, just because like on the from from the rear, the Comanches were just eating them alive, and like, but it took for a long time for the Spanish to kind of decipher what was happening. And then they, like the Mexican government was kind of thrilled when like, America came into sort of settling parts of Texas because they thought, oh, well then the, maybe the Comanches will fight them for a while instead of us. And anyway, history is very complex. Yeah. And, but it's people messy want, and it's Yeah, but people want to cling to these really simplistic narratives. Yeah. So like, I love anything that kind of breaks that, you know, overarching view of history, the textbook kind of like simple one sentence version of history, anything that makes a total mess of that. I, I totally love stuff like that. Hell yeah. Now, you know, the pre-code Hollywood yeah. is, I wouldn't say it's an inexhaustible chapter because it's only really a couple of years. Like for me, quintessential pre-code Hollywood is 1929 slash 30 up through. It, it's like 30 to 33. Period. It's a very yeah. short window actually, yeah. you know, like, um, I mean, there's some, I, think, I guess the Thin Man, that's probably postcode, right? right? That's kind of uh, cut off. I don't know. Let me check. I think that's 35, but I really don't. I can't say it off the top of my head. It, it might be 34. It might have been just like right after the restrictions come in. but like 1934. So, yeah, I don't quite know yeah. if it made the – because a lot of times these movies would get made. Then the code was finally like the law of the land. Like, oh, yeah. what do we do with them? Like Scarlet Empress was finished. And they're yeah. like, well, can we even release this fucker? This movie's bananas. <laughs> You know, but I like I think maybe that's my favorite period of Hollywood history. Uh, maybe that or like the late 60s kind of Hollywood. Uh, early 70s and early 30s are like two tra yeah. transgressive periods. But there's a weird thing where like the early 70s transgressive movies feel kind of like down and dirty, like um, like uh, well, drive in movies like Glass House on the Left. A lot of those were throwbacks to movies in the 30s. I mean, they said like I, I think there's more movies about the depression era made in the 1970s than any other decade, including the 1930s. You know, like people were really interested in these uh, films dealing with the depression and that period and sort of looking back to that. And I, I think you kind of see these sort of cycles in history, these like history, you know, if, if it doesn't repeat itself, that it definitely rhymes that kind of keeps happening. What's cool about the early thirties, it's a rare moment in Hollywood history where transgressive topics or subjects or characters were married to Hollywood production value. And I feel like oftentimes if you have a genuinely transgressive movie, they're probably hamstrung by like a modest budget or a low budget. This is a weird, rare moment where these really bold, bizarre, crazy yep. topics would get the big budget treatment. And they, they were like number one at the box office. Like everyone was going along with that. Yeah. You know, those were sort of two periods in, in time in Hollywood where like you just saw these really 
bold moves and interesting artists coming about and people who would, you know, be relevant artists for decades afterwards and keep doing interesting work. They all kind of emerged at that time period. Or some of them, like, uh, you know, somebody like John Houston kind of basically made a comeback during these uh, periods. You know, he was kind of a great artist in the 1930s and a great artist, you know, coming out of the 70s with stuff like Fat City and continue to be to the end of his career, I think. But, you know, like you had... um, some people kind of appearing in both periods, but like just incredibly vibrant, bold, artistic, transgressive cinema that, you know, how, how could you not be in love with that? Well, I'm going to ask you for a brief shining moment to put on your screenwriter hat. Imagine a scenario where it's Chicago, 1930, 31, and on the same day in different parts of town, Tom Powers, Enrico Bandello, and Tony all arrive and they all arrive with nothing, and they start working their way up. Envision for me what happens as these three claw their way to prominence and inevitably encounter one another and start threatening each other's turf. If you were to predict, just as a fan, who would win in this knockdown, dragout brawl between these three unholy terrors? <laughs> I, I think probably... Um, oh, gosh. I, I think... Tom Powers and Rico would probably gang up against Scarface, but then uh, somebody would have to betray somebody by the end. That's that's how that usually goes. So they, they, I mean, yeah. <laughs> they form alliances, and then one alliances, of them gets jealous or whatever, and then they yeah. backstab each other. Yeah, that's how, how it goes in all these. <laughs> uh, maybe there'd be a woman, woman involved. That's how it goes, too, sometimes. Not with Rico. Rico, yeah. That's, he, he maybe just, not Rico, yeah, but uh, somebody. He's totally indifferent to women. It's like, women. <laughs> Dancing, oh, like he just has such contempt. Well, and he's uh, like Energies Robinson. He's also like the way he plays the character is kind of stilted too, which is funny. Like I, I like uh, when he's trying on the suit. He looks so like uncomfortable and like he's just kind of out of his element in anything that's not being a gangster. Like that's kind of the one thing he's good at in life. <laughs> I don't want no dancing. Yeah. I figure I'm making other people dance i mean he's got so, <laughs> so many great lines to get out of this racket you know like all these like lines you hear a million times before you even see the film yeah these movies they for me they invented the hollywood gangster movie even though there have been earlier examples that i mentioned before i mean like underworld and docs in new york yeah. and those von sternberg movies they're fucking good they're really good but they're just they're different it's silent movies and talkies are just different different forms of storytelling you know all the unique slang gangster phrases uh i like this is the era this is kind of the the center of that genre really if you this is where miller's crossing comes from i mean like and i love how you you get a little bleed over from the silent era like little like title cards like at one point when they say how caesar continued to look after himself his hair and his gun with excellent results it's a title card from like 1927 like wait a second y'all kind of haven't quite let go of that style of storytelling from a couple of years earlier. Took care of his hair and his gun with excellent results or similar results, something like that. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. Oh, it's so, it's so beautiful. Yeah. I, I, anyway, I, I love these three movie to pieces and give them my highest possible recommendation. And I really can't put into words just how influential that first class was. When I was a second year at UVA, I took history film part two. First movie that we saw was the blue angel. Then we saw little Caesar. Then I think we saw, duck soup we also we saw so many good things we saw like ivan the terrible and magnificent ambersons and just like one oh stagecoach like just like one that sounds killer. like a great class yeah. it was a really good class and the teacher i'll say 
allegedly, I don't quite know how his trial, the teacher eventually was arrested for trafficking in child pornography, but he was oh, a really shit. good uh, film history teacher. That so happened at, uh, at my university too, the dawn on my floor and the professor, they were busted for the same thing. So that's, that was a shock when that happened. So, but it's a weird thing. Well, what I do not condone the uh, the tastes no. and preferences of the teacher. He was a really good film history teacher, but I will not say his name. But if people want to, this UVA child pornography film teacher, his name will come up, and you can tell mm-hmm. me how his story ended. But I took every single movie class he offered at UVA, from like uh, cinema as an art form, history film parts one and two, uh, film aesthetics. He he offered a bunch of good ones. I took them all because he he was like you know, the only good film teacher at UVA at that time. But well, anyway, now that we're on the subject of uh, Speaking of like depraved <laughs> subjects, what can yep. we look forward to in the near future in uh, FlixWise Canada? What what you got going on? And uh, just pr- time to plug and promote all your various projects and various ongoing activities. Sure. I've got an episode coming up very soon where I talk to Dave Eves about space travel movies. That's been in the works for a little while. Um, nice. I've got maybe some video game podcasting endeavor coming up in the future. Um Maybe some other other podcasting topics too, but I, what, are you, I think, what are you playing right now? Uh, right now, I just finished um, Ghost of Tsushima. Nice. So I, I think I'm going to be talking about that maybe in contrast with um, Sekiro: Shadows Die Twice, just kind of comparing and contrasting those two games because they're maybe on the surface very similar looking but very different kind of when you get into them. Yeah, very. I haven't played Tsushima, but I heard it's one of the best yeah. games of the last couple of years. But I hear that totally different gameplay. I feel gameplay. like it's uh, it's maybe I would say one of the best looking games I've ever played is kind of how I would qualify it. But uh, you know, really interesting experiences both games, and I think I might actually go back and play go, um, Death Stranding. They do. Kojima game because I picked that up when it first came out and I was kind of disappointed with it. I was like, ah, you know, it's sort of tedious gameplay and kind of weird story. And then, you know, I've been thinking like a year into this pandemic, I'm like, you know what, a lot of stuff from that game actually kind of stuck with me and I might pick it up again. And, you know, there's like even little lines about like, oh, how, you know, how society is supposed to function when you can't shake hands and stuff like that, you know, and it's all about this like invisible force that's changed the way people live. And it's about, you know, this uh, basically just a delivery man kind of trying to keep civilization together by a thread. So I, I sort of thought like, you know what, there's actually something kind of prophetic there and interesting and I might go back and play that game. Um, I, have you seen the trailer for the new Resident Evil game? Resident I Evil Village. Not. I saw a couple of thumbnails oh, wow. from it, and okay. for whatever reason, I didn't watch it. I don't know why, because I've played a couple of Resident Evil games. My all-time yeah. favorite is number four, which I think is my favorite horror first-person yeah. shooter that I've ever played. But um, in terms of what I've been playing lately, played Cyberpunk 2077 for like four or five straight weeks, and the thing that stopped it is I did got early access to Baldur's Gate 3, which is oh, a okay. computer game based on 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, but it only lets you play the first like 20% of it or so, unless you like, get up to like, level 4, but it's a, a really big, complex game. And as you're well yep. aware, I've been dipping my toes back into the world of tabletop RPG, so it's been a fun way to kind of enhance my knowledge of 5th edition but at the same time, not having to do all the work that's involved in running tabletop RPGs, because obviously tabletop RPGs, it's a lot of math and a lot of writing and a lot of preparation. And sometimes you just want to sit back and just play the game. Exactly. I think also now is like a perfect time to kind of get into something like that because, you know, most of your interactions are like over the computer and, you know, you can actually make a 
good Zoom group or Skype group or whatever it is and have a game going. And I, I think it's probably going to be a lot of fun. So Speaking of which, we're yeah. going to uh, <laughs> dip our toes into introducing Mr. Kessler to this world as soon as we stop uh, recording. So where can people find you on Twitter? Where can people find you on Facebook? All that good stuff. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Movie Kessler. That's the best place for all my uh, gangster movie tweets and gifts and whatnot. So, you know, if you hear this, go check that out. I'm probably posting some Edward G. Robinson gifts. Well, we got a good thing going. What I've noticed is like the last couple episodes that we've done together, you will post something on Twitter, and I'm like, that's amazing. We should talk about it tonight. And you're like, okay. And then we end up doing an episode. <laughs> so yeah. I just kind of wait and see. I, I still think what we should do the. I, we talked about. I, I still think we should do the '90s sci-fi. Oh hell yeah, absolutely. That we discussed because I've had a couple people being like, "Hey, I can't wait for that episode." Nice. So Excellent. I, like, I can't okay, wait for it now, as well. Now I'm beholden to do it, so I think that'll be maybe well, the next one. If or, we want to make it super easy to commit to, what we can do is you just keep all your '90s sci-fi picks a secret. Don't tell me. Okay. And so that my preparation, I don't have to watch a hundred fucking movies for it i can be like all right well i'll fucking record it tomorrow and you just i just turn on the microphone and let you talk <laughs> so you just tell me when you're ready and i'll gladly just listen and so uh yeah you just so it's right. entirely in your capable hands okay sounds good i'll we'll keep that in mind <laughs> yeah i mean what i'll probably end up doing is just like looking at all the crazy 90s sci-fi and watching some of the key good and bad ones that I never just happened to get around to just so I, I don't have as many blind spots. But I think it'd be yep. fun to be kind of surprised along the way to hear your, your favorites because it's 90s now. I mean, it's the 90s are a long time ago and people are going to be looking yep. through that period very aggressively to see what the hidden gems might be. We're getting into 30 years ago, the 90s. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, that's a whole generation's worth. Like, I'm sure you have listeners who are probably they weren't even born in the 90s so these are you know like for me i remember growing up like movies from the 80s felt as contemporaneous as anything in the 90s it was just like you read something from the video store and an 80s movie felt like it was happening now and a 70s movie felt so old at the same time it was like this weird cutoff where like oh a 70s movie like that's that's an old movie and like a movie from like 1982 i'm like oh yeah that's happening today or like terminator that's that's happening right now, watching these movies as a kid. So I don't know how like people watching today, what they feel like is, is old or I don't know. It's Only uh, now when I watch movies, like I was watching, um, anytime I see a movie from the early eighties that I've never seen before, then they start to feel like quote, yeah, unquote, yeah. old movies. And so I'm preparing an episode about Jay Lee Thompson and he did a lot of, uh, Charles Bronson movies in the eighties that I hadn't seen as well, as well as a lot of earlier things like guns and Navarone, but I've never seen his, like his Charles Bronson movie. So I started watching one today. I was like, Whoa, this thing feels like from the, like from the stone age, but I was alive when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> and my girlfriend, she'll tease me now about like, Oh, that old movie. And she's talking about something from like five years ago or like yeah. 10 years ago. And she's like, yeah, that really, really old movie. So <laughs> it's, oh, it's like, I mean, it was a joke yeah. in like you know, Captain America, yeah. civil war and Spider-Man. Oh, you remember that really old movie? Like, you know, empire strikes back. And they're all like, how old is this kid? Like, <laughs> old is a relative term. term. At any rate, well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you've not seen these movies in a while, revisit them i guarantee they will just knock you flat on your back the best movies of the pre-code era they do not age i mean obviously they are old movies they're nearly a century old but they it's funny how just the more time goes by the 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 more brightly they seem to shine so i'm a massive fan of all three let us know what you think when it comes to this fictional battle between tom tony and rico and who might prevail (laughs) I, i guess 
I, I'm incl- I'm inclined to think that Tom would win as well. I, I think somehow Tom would come out on top. He seems like the most. Uh, He's got resilient. Nails Nathan in his corner. Yeah. If it's yeah. Tom bef- pre Nails Nathan getting kicked by the horse, I think Tom. If he, well, if he go through the trouble of killing a horse to get revenge, it's like that. That just disproves Moby Dick right there. You can get revenge on nature. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, remember to leave a rating review. We would greatly appreciate it. And if you want some short-form content and uh, anytime over the next couple of days, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. But we can't thank you enough for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>